Well, good morning. If we did not meet earlier, I'm Tyler. My wife and I, Lee, we get to lead this church together. We're glad that you are here. We're continuing this series called The Early Church, where we explore the early church through the lens of Acts. And Acts is written by Luke, who also wrote Luke. And so for us, we get to explore the the continuation of Jesus' ministry on earth with the church that he gives birth to. I want to pray for us before we dig in. God, in these moments, would you be the one that speaks? Through all the noise, through all the distraction, through all the hesitations, through all the things that we believe to be true that are lies, God, would your still small voice whisper to us? God, would you use me to proclaim your words? I believe that your words have power to set people free. And it's by your power that any of this has any impact. And so, Holy Spirit, would you move? Would you illuminate our minds to hear from you? God, we need you. Have your way. Amen. Now, we've been on this journey looking at the early church, exploring the impact of the early church and some of the characteristics in this historical narrative of what the early church looked like. But it's really important that you know that behind all the movement and all the momentum, all of the amazing things that happened in the early church, that there was resistance. There was challenge. There was difficulty. And this same resistance that the early church faced, we face today. The truth is that the enemy of our souls is at work trying to destroy what God is building. This was true for the early church, and it is true today. We call the enemy of our souls Satan or the devil. And Satan isn't even a word. It's actually a title. The title Satan actually means the adversary. He is the adversary of God, the enemy of God, the opponent of God. And so in the early church, we find the adversary at work. First, he tried a frontal attack. The early church was beginning, and so he made it so there was persecution. There were religious leaders trying to kill the leader and people. It was difficult. He tried a frontal attack, and yet that frontal attack was not effective. And so he made it so that following Jesus as the early church, following the way of Jesus, would cost them maybe even everything, and yet people continued to come to faith. The adversary tried to crush the church before it could ever get started, but it didn't work. Now, it's really important that we understand the way that the adversary, the way that our enemy, the way that Satan or the devil works, because he's crafty, but he's not super original. He has three strategies that he uses that are just really effective. And we find these strategies in Acts, and we start to see patterns maybe even in our own life. And so I want to put on the screen the three strategies that the enemy uses on us and on the church. And what I'd love for you to do is is actually get out your phone and take a picture of this. You have permission to pull out your phone and take a picture of this slide. 
And I say that because I think it's really important for us to continually remind ourselves when something happens, oh wait, right, Tyler told me, and the book of Acts actually reminds me that this is something I can expect. Three strategies that the enemy uses. First, he tries to kill it early by force. With the early church, he tried to kill it early by force. In our life, he tries to kill things early by force. Get it before it takes root. The second strategy is to compromise it, is to actually cause human beings to give in to compromise and moral corruption. And the third is that he tries to distract us. Three strategies that the enemy of our soul uses. Now, the the first strategy, this idea that he tries to kill it early by force that we see in the early church, I want to just for a moment just speak to what that implication is for us today. Because for some of us, I know, for some of us right now, we're taking significant steps in our faith. We're going, I'm committed to growing. I'm committed to going where God's asking. I'm rejecting some things that I've done in the past. I'm repenting and I'm moving forward. And you're facing every bit of this resistance. You're like, I'm trying to do all the things that I'm supposed to do, and yet it just seems to be harder right now. And if that's you, I just want you to know you're not alone. And I want you to know that where you are going is precisely where you should be going. There's resistance because you are taking steps. You are declaring, I want, to, I want to follow the way of Jesus, not the way of the world. And so there is resistance that the enemy places in our life. And if you're feeling that resistance, can I just encourage you, don't give up, don't give in. Fight back. Continue to take steps in the direction toward Jesus. I'm going to give you one specific one that I think you could take on November 26th. And that is our Celebration Sunday where we'll have baptisms. And we'll have parent and child dedications. And maybe for some of you who've never been baptized. And the next step that you need to take is to be baptized. I know all the lies in our heads. One of the lies that we believe, and it's a cultural thing where we're like, well, I haven't quite arrived to the place that I'm quite ready. But if we look at the pattern of scripture, we see people believe and be baptized. There's not like this long process of catechism where they learn all of the right answers. They believe and then they are baptized. Baptism is a really important thing. When, when we do it, it's a symbolic gesture. It's evidence of the fact that we have died to our old life. And that as we come up, we are washed clean by Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, by his sacrifice and resurrection. And so we are baptized and we declare that this is our experience. We have new life in Jesus. And if you know, I I need to get baptized, and yet you feel all the resistance, the lies, again, let me just say, don't give in. Take that next step. Let us stand with you and declare war against the kingdom of darkness and dunk you under the water celebrating your new life. And so if that's you, I want to encourage you to sign up. You can find a form on our website. And if you're not sure what to do, talk to one of the prayer team members. Talk to one of the people on our volunteer team. Talk to me. I would love to help you take your next step towards baptism. The truth is for all of us that what Satan would love for us to do is cause us or get us to back off in the face of challenge and resistance for us just to settle in and to give up. 
to feel resistance and go, it must just be me, and I must be doing it wrong, and so to let it push us back instead of us pushing against the resistance. The truth is, if you're feeling any kind of resistance in your spiritual life, you're in good company. We look at the early church who were facing difficulty. There were all these amazing things happening, and yet on the other side of it, challenges that were happening. And what do we see? Last week, we talked about this. In the face of difficulty, the early church is facing really, really, really challenging things. Not like, hey, it's uncomfortable to follow Jesus, but um, you could die for this. And what is their prayer? They pray for more, more boldness. They go, God, you hear all the threats. Give us more and more boldness. And that's the first strategy that Satan uses, to try to kill it early by force. The second I want us to look at today. Today, I want to speak to the strategy of compromise and moral corruption. Now, we find ourselves at the end of Acts 4. And before we see Satan's counter move to God's move, we see some of the evidence of the beauty of the early church. In Acts 4, verse 32, we find this passage that says, All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. So they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Now, if you remember where we've gone, you would recognize that this is a bit of an echo of something we find earlier. In Acts 2, we actually see something similar where we see that they were united in heart and mind and that the early church shared everything. They were willing to hold everything with an open hand. I want you to imagine what this would look like if this happened today. What it would look like in the context of the church if we actually were united together in heart and in mind and didn't see all of our stuff as mine, 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 but we're willing to say, if I can help people that are in need, I hold nothing with a closed fist. Can you imagine the impact that that might have on a world that, that sees Christians very differently than we are? What they might see to be true about us in our generosity? The truth is, as followers of Jesus, that all that we have comes from God and it belongs to God. That we know that as we've surrendered our life to Jesus, he, he's given us new life. And it means that everything that we have in light of that is now his. And yet God, in his infinite wisdom, entrusts us with resources. He says here, be a good steward of this. But in that, we resist the urge to do what culture tells us, which is hold it like this. Mine, mine, me, me, me. And instead, we are invited to look at the early church and think, is it possible that maybe we need to live from a place of generosity? I mean, the early church was incredibly generous. There were no needs among them. Can you imagine what that would be like? I've used it previously in, in sermons, but there's stats that actually talk about if every single Jesus follower even tithed, which is give 10%. Even if they did that, we would eradicate poverty in the world. Eradicate. No more hunger, nothing. It's interesting. So if all Christians actually live generously, now the call in the early church and in the New Testament is to go above and beyond. But even if we just did that, 
gone. It's not coincidental. And so we find the early church that they weren't concerned about all of it. They were going, okay, we have needs right now, so we're just going to be generous. We're going to live like this. We know who we are. We know what God has done for us. We watch Jesus, and so we can't help but respond by giving generously. Can you imagine if we actually live like that? And I do want to let you know that there will be an opportunity to give generously at the end of the service, to respond in that posture. I also want you to know that for us, that we don't see this as something that we want anything from you. Honestly, we want you to not hold the, have, have money, have grip of your heart. Jesus talks about the love of money, and he talks about money so much through the, the New Testament. And for us, we go, we just want to release that grip that money has to hold on, that we go, my identity is in this, and instead live open-handedly. And so you're invited to give to and through Collective Church, but beyond that, honestly, my prayer would be that you, with your finances, ask God what he wants you to do, and you just do that. That you allow him to be the one that guides and speaks in an area of our life money that we tend to hold pretty tightly. And so the early church lives with this understanding of God's generosity and the implications for their lives. They get radical. And they start selling things, including their land and their houses. Let me just be very, very clear. This is not a prescriptive thing where I'm like, start selling your houses, start selling your land, and give it to the church. But I would say, if God's inviting you to sell whatever, do it and see what he does. Luke tells us a specific story in Acts in in verse 36 says, for instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles named Barnabas, nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Good nickname, right? Son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. So you have Barnabas, and he sells a field, and he gives the money to the apostles. This is radical generosity, And you see Barnabas is living with this open-handed view where he goes, my stuff's not mine, and he sensed that he was supposed to sell his field and then give his money. We don't know that he sold everything. We know that he sold this field. And then he held nothing back, and he went here. And he entrusted the apostles to distribute it how they saw fit. Beautiful story. Beautiful reminder of the early church. But then we turn the page. And then we turn the page to Acts 5. On the other side of beauty, of faith, of obedience, we see how our adversary, the enemy of our soul, would love to use his strategies to attack us. Not the first one, kill it early by force. The second one, compromise it. Moral corruption. We find this in Acts 5, verse 1 to 11. I'm going to read the whole section and then we'll unpack the implications for today. Acts 5, verse 1 to 11 says this, but, so on the other side of Barnabas, but there was a certain man named Ananias, who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He brought part of the money, not all of it, part of the money to the apostles, but he claimed it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, so they conspired, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias Why have you let Satan fill your heart, enemy of our souls? He's looking at 
him saying, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied. That was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door and they will carry you out too. And instantly she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Now, if we read this story, if we grew up in church, we kind of know the story, but if we read this story with fresh eyes, on the surface we can think, this seems crazy. You know, like you, you just go from this amazing scenario where you have Barnabas who sells the land, and then next you have Ananias and Sapphira who then um, lie and then die, and you're like, wow, this is a lot. And it can bring up some things in us, so you can think, you know, God, this seems like an extreme response to a lie. Like, this seems to be a pretty harsh way to respond. It's really important that we understand what we see here with Ananias and Sapphira is a perversion of something beautiful. I mean, you have Barnabas who is holding what he has with open hands, and he's not feeling pressured to give everything. He's just giving it because he knows who God is and then you have Ananias and Sapphira who use generosity not as an extension or overflow of their heart, but as a way to prop up their perception, to try to make themselves appear to be something that they are not. And so rather than true generosity, we see this perversion of something lesser. And how does God handle it? Not lightly. God doesn't just go, that's eh, fine, whatever. They're struck dead, both of them. Now again, you might be thinking, this seems kind of harsh, God. Like, this is your response. The problem is that oftentimes for us in 2023, and certainly in North America, and if we've grown up in the church and become at all comfortable with all of it, is that we sometimes forget the holiness of God. We sometimes treat God like he is lesser than he is. The reality is that God's grace is beautiful, and it is a gift that we cannot earn. God makes a way for us, but it should cause us to grow in reverence, not in flippant familiarity. You know when you're flippant in your familiarity of something where you just kind of go, eh, whatever, and so God, who is holy, and you think, you know what, it's whatever, it's fine. I did my part on Sunday. I think for some of us, there's real risk that we forget about God's holiness. 
And so we approach a story like this, and it starts to grate on some areas in our life. And we go, how do I reconcile that? It's important that you know that God does not view hypocrisy, pride, or lying as something insignificant. And the truth is that we see it in the church even right now. We see the disconnect. We see the public version and then the private version. It's why we see moral failure. It's why we see leaders that we respect that all of a sudden things come out and there's some real baggage and some real dirty stuff behind them. And we look at that and we go, I can't believe they did this. But all of us have this capacity to live like this. I think if we looked at moral failures with leaders and then actually unpacked what happened in the church, we'd see the same pattern. We have people in the church that live double lives and think that's okay. And live in a way where we have real stuff going on in our life and we just push it down and pretend like it's not there. At some level, we have to. This is why I asked you to take a picture of the slide. We have to be reminded that this is one of the strategies that Satan would love to use. And not just for me as one of the leaders, for us as Jesus followers. He would love to get us to this place where we compromise what we believe, where we are surrendered to moral corruption, where we're more concerned about how people perceive us than what's actually going on in our hearts. We cannot be okay with that. And not just for leaders, for all of us. It is not okay for us to live one way and proclaim something different. The reality is, is that we hear people talking about the church and saying, I don't like it because they're filled with hypocrites. And the truth is, all of us at some level have hypocrisy. None of us live up perfectly to the standard that we set out. But as Jesus followers, we should be the kind of people that are, that are working in community to close that gap. We should look in five years and think, I'm not, I'm not where I want to be. I'm not where I was. And I'm not going to hide. And I'm not going to keep all the stuff to myself. I'm going to bring it into community. See, a story like this can cause us to think like we are the heroes. We can go, oh, I would never do that. I would never come up and say, well, I've sold everything, but not actually do it. And yet the truth is, in our life, there are places that we do exactly what Ananias and Sapphira have done. We try to present ourselves one way when we know the truth is something different. We try to lie so that we keep our perception instead of, deny, or instead of recognizing that God actually sees all of us and the beauty of community is to not pretend anymore, but to actually bring what we have as people that desperately need Jesus into the context of others who love you and love Jesus. It's important for us to know that if, if Satan can't get you to give up early because it's difficult, then the next thing he'll try to do is get you to give up on yourself and on your beliefs, and he'll get you to compromise and surrender to moral corruption. He uses that technique, and he uses these three, three strategies because he's really effective with it.
When we come to this place of thinking, I would never do that, I'm so beyond that, and think like pride, we, with pride, I think we risk developing significant blind spots. All of us are capable of things that we look and go, I, I'm ashamed of that. And for us to recognize that there are areas in our life that we have blind spots, the beauty of community and why people resist it is because in community, your blind spots are exposed. In, in strong relationships, when I think about my marriage with Lee, I don't get to just pretend to be something I'm not. At some level, she sees me for all that I am. And spoiler alert, I am nowhere near perfect. And the blind spots that I have, she's able to speak into, and vice versa. The blind spots that she has, I'm able to speak into. But it's so much more than just seeking marriage for that. It's in community as we have people around us that love us and see us and yet go, don't go there. Do you see this area that is disconnected? And that's risky. Because we wonder how will people respond if they actually see our junk? And so what does it do? For so many of us, it causes us to go, I'm not going to risk it. And instead of, instead of coming to people, instead we begin to develop pride and we rank ourselves. And we go, well, I might struggle with this thing, but it's not like them who struggle with that thing. And I'm, I think I'm better than them. It's not that big of a deal. And, and the Holy Spirit's going, no, it's all a big deal. And, and I want you to know that there's an invitation for us to actually Choose a different way. To instead choose the way of Jesus rather than the way of the world, which is hide and, and keep and make sure perception is protected. If we recognize that there are blind spots in our life, it should instead cause us to continually ask the Holy Spirit, is there anything in my life that doesn't line up? Is there anything that is disconnected between what I say I believe and how I am living? Help me to see my blind spots. And it also requires us in, in radical humility to do that with people that we trust that love us and love Jesus. To go, hey, are there blind spots you see, see in my life? That's not a fun thing to ask someone to do. So if you're sensing, like, I should probably do that at some point, and you somehow think that it's going to be easy and flowery, it's going to be hard and difficult, and yet it repatterns our minds to going, that's what we were made to do. Not try to pretend, not keep to ourselves, but lay our life out and believe that God who sent his son died for us when we were sinners and broken, and we don't have to pretend like now we're all good. That in community would actually come and go, I'm still desperately in need of Jesus as a Savior. This attitude and posture of actually following Jesus in this way should develop in us repentance and a posture of humility. I don't know that I need to tell you, but I, I will. You will make mistakes. In your pursuit of even doing this, you will stumble. As you are responding to what God is asking you to do, you will not do it perfectly. I do not do it perfectly. There are so many areas that I see and I look at and I go, oh man, I have so far to go. But there's real risk about the areas of our life that we go, not that, that develop into pride and hiding and lying and hypocrisy. There's real implications in our environment and in our 
world. You will have moments where your life is out of alignment with the way of Jesus. And when you are confronted with sin in your life. And the question becomes, how do you respond? If there's areas in your life where there is sin, do you get comfortable and go to bed with that sin? Or do you put it to death? Do you do it in community? Because I think the thing for us is we just go, I'll do it by myself. That's not how you were designed. And so for some of us, we have areas in our life, maybe even right now, that are being brought up that you go, well, that is not what I want. There's some things here. The Holy Spirit's drawing my attention. How will we respond? We choose the way of Jesus or the way of the world. We choose pride or repentance. The idea of repenting when you turn the other way, when you give up on the way that you are going to choose the way of Jesus is by nature not something that develops pride in you. Because at some level you have to go, I was going in the wrong direction and I don't want to do that anymore. And yet we find ourselves going, you know what, it's not that big of a deal and so we see pride develop in our Life. Here's what is so important for us as a culture of our church, collective church. We must value repentance over perception. We must value this posture of going, I am unwilling to allow things that are hindering me to remain where they are. I don't need to pretend or be perceived as something I'm not. I need an attitude of continual dependence and repentance in God. I I need to live like he is the only one that I need. And if we live like perception is the the goal, we will inevitably find ourselves in places that harm our souls and impact people around us. We cannot become flippant about the sin in our lives or the areas that we are living double lives. If we follow Jesus, if we call ourselves Jesus followers, there is a different expectation for us. If you don't, that's not for you, but for the rest of us, we can't live like that. Living one way in the darkness and pretending like it doesn't impact everything that happens in the light. We cannot become comfortable with lying or pretending to be something that we're not. It is not okay for us to become complacent in this area. This is one that it requires us to continually be vigilant. And the beauty is, if we are willing to humbly acknowledge our sin, confess it to God and to others, we experience grace. And not just grace as a concept, grace personified. Grace through Jesus and grace through people. But if, on the other side, we treat grace like this cheap excuse to just do whatever we feel like and to be Sunday Christians and to live like the rest of the week doesn't matter, it becomes cheap and it becomes familiar and it lacks any sense of bite and impact to the world around us. There are hundreds of thousands of people that don't yet know Jesus. And when they see lives like that, they are not drawn to the beauty of Jesus. They see us, our humanity, on display. And as a church, we exist to make it it all about people seeing Jesus. That's what we want. And if we live in this place of repentance and continued confession and continued willingness to let God confront any areas in our life and doing it in community, we begin to be a community that personifies and exemplifies God's grace 
And it's not cheap grace, it's beautiful grace that changes lives. And so we're invited to wrestle. On what do we actually want in our life? Are we going to settle for just being Sunday Christians or people that are Christians in name only? Are we going to settle for living our lives the same way everyone else lives our life or lives their life, or instead are we going to choose this radical way of Jesus? Look at the early church as a glimmer of what could be if we live our lives open-handed, if we hold back nothing, if we share everything, not just financially, but in our lives. If we actually lay our life before others, before God, and say, search me and know me, any areas in my life that offend me, please confront them. Imagine if we lived like we actually are known in all of our brokenness and yet loved the way that we are loved. Because the reality is, the lie that we believe is, if people know me, if people know all the stuff I've done, then they'll reject me. What do we know to be true about Jesus? Is that he sees all of it. All your hidden stuff. All the stuff you're most ashamed of. I have certain memories that I think about that. You, just, you feel that shame bubbling. He sees all of that, and yet he gave his life willingly for you. Loves you in the midst of all of it. Why are we living differently than that? We go, well, grace is sufficient for the sins that have come, but now, you know what, I'll just kind of hide and keep and protect and lie and, and manage my image. Where did we learn that from? I'll tell you. The enemy of our souls is going, just pretend. What if we stopped? What if we lived differently? I think God is in this season inviting us as a church and the church as a whole to look and go, I'm unwilling to become comfortable with that. We want to cultivate honest reflection in our life that leads us to repentance. We don't want to settle for something lesser. We want to live differently. Ananias and Sapphira in pride, they valued their perception over reality. God in his wholeness. So they valued perception over reality. God in his wholeness values reality over perception. And if our hearts are not right, he's not interested in pretending. He wants healing and he wants wholeness. And what do we do in our life when there are areas of our life, when there's sin in our life, where there are places that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, or maybe someone in our life loves us, loves God, and challenges us? How do we respond? I think the human part of us goes, don't tell me what to do. But instead, maybe, just maybe, the Holy Spirit is inviting you to experience a deeper level of healing and wholeness than you ever have before. And we reject the lie that we have to try to pretend to be something that we're not and be more concerned about perception than reality. And instead, we fall flat our face before Jesus and go, I need you. I need help. It causes us to think, am I living in a way that lines up with what I say that I believe? And I want you just to think about your own patterns because oftentimes we use sin as a way of numbing something that's uncomfortable. When you think about your own life where there is sin, right now, do you find it grieving you? 
does it bother you or do you find yourself feeling pretty numb to it? And what would it look like to be honest about that before God and even more risky, others? The reality that when it comes to this posture of living with repentance and confession and rejecting compromise and moral corruption is there's a personal responsibility for each of us that follow Jesus. That we actually need to model this. We need to do this. this can't, we can't be okay with living separate lives. We can't hide stuff. We can't pretend like everything is good when it is not. But then there's a community responsibility. Because if we are a community that actually does this, repents to each other, confesses to one another, and the community treats that person immediately like, wow, there is something wrong with you. Get away from me. Then we undermine any ability for there to be healing. When someone confesses something to us that takes a tremendous amount of courage, we need to respond in kind. And we need to acknowledge that this is a holy moment, a divine invitation for us to meet that person and to seek God's face in the midst of that. We cannot be the kind of community that says, you should repent, and when someone does, we're like, wow, you are a real failure. And, and, and we'd never say that out loud, but we'd react to someone if they say something that we deem to be, wow, that's a lot. And then our faces kind of, wow, oof. And what does that mean for the person that's just taken the giant step of courage it takes to actually share something? They go, what I learn? Don't. I don't want that for us. Now, I'd be a liar if I said I do that perfectly. I want us to be the kind of place that you can actually acknowledge where you are messed up. And it's not where we sit and go, eh, who cares? We go, I'm proud of you, resisting the urge to pretend. Now, what's at the root of that? Because the truth is, with sin in our lives, there's always something at the root. There's always something at the base. And so when someone actually invites someone else into that pain, we can actually do the real work. So personally, I'm responsible for repenting and confessing and sharing. It's why... A few weeks previously, I repented of some things publicly because I think I, I'm not just saying, hey, you guys should do this. I want to make sure that, that Lee and I, we are modeling this as leaders. But also, I am responsible for helping shape the culture of our church. So when people are repenting, are we wrapping our loving arms around them saying, I'm so proud of you? I mean, we had people on the panel here share so vulnerably and I'm so proud of us being the kind of church that they felt, they felt open to actually do that. We have to cultivate that. Hold nothing back. Value reality over perception. Reject lying and hiding and hypocrisy and seek with everything that we have to be a kind of community that follows the way of Jesus together. That every single time that we hear the voice that's like, just keep it to yourself, we recognize that voice is not God's. And we choose instead to listen to his voice. I wonder if in this, that if there's some areas that maybe God is challenging and confronting. Now the specific one that this Ananias and Sapphira story speaks to is around money. Money is one of the great idols in our life. We say, oh, we want to be generous and then live lesser. Or we look at our bank accounts and we go, I love Jesus. And if we looked at our bank accounts, we'd see we love eating out and Starbucks. 
And I don't, I'm not saying that as trying to just put weight on us. I, I look at even in my own life and go, am I being radically generous in the way that I live? I, I, I was with Ava and uh, we went and got a bunch of candy and they dressed up and, and afterwards um, she has this giant bag of candy and she's like, do you want anything? And I'm like, no, it's fine. And then secretly as a parent, I'm like doing the dad tax later where it's at nighttime. And I'm like, I'll just eat a few things. And I had one time where I ate some of her chocolate and then she found out. And then she was very sad. And her heart was broken. And she said to me, if you would have asked, I would have given it to you. And I think, okay, here's my (laughs) five-year-old modeling this radical generosity And it confronted some stuff in my own heart. How do we respond when that happens? If God's asking us to give something, will we do it? If God's asking us to give up something, will we do it? If God's asking us to use our money in a certain way, will we do it? I don't know what area right now God's trying to reevaluate or realign your priorities. Maybe it's around finances. But maybe it's something else. Like maybe you just recognize in my life the way that I say I want to live is not being, it's not lining up with how I'm living. There are areas of compromise in your life right now. Areas of moral corruption that you need to address. That I believe God has sent me to begin that process for you. And so maybe right now, maybe God is inviting you to repent of those things. Maybe he's bringing them to mind right now and you're recognizing, okay, I can't just continue to go where I've gone and do what I have done. Maybe there are areas of pride rather than, or pride or perception rather than reality. And so I'd like to, as we, before we go into worship, create a little bit of space for reflection. So, So what I'd love for you to do right now is just close your eyes. And I want to create some space for us to boldly ask the Holy Spirit, is there anything in my life right now that he's trying to point out? I'm going to have it on the screen that you can reflect on afterwards, just so you can be reminded, are there, any, are there areas of compromise or moral corruption in my life that I have not dealt with? And so I want to invite you to take a bold step right now. And take a moment to listen to God. If you need to look at the screen to see what it says to be reminded of direction that you are going. And take a few moments to reflect and ask the Holy Spirit. Beyond simply time that we spend on a Sunday, I want you to take this. Maybe you need to take a picture of the the screen. And I want you to reflect on this this week. 
in the context of your co-groups, I want to take, I want to invite you to take a step and risk being honest about some areas in your life that you've held back on. I want to invite you to take a, a, a step even this morning. Our prayer team is going to be up, and maybe if I could, I'd love to just even ask our prayer team to come up now. Our prayer team's going to be up at the front. And if you have some things in your life and you recognize I need to even right now take a step and go be prayed for, maybe even share, or maybe just respond, I want to invite you to do so. I want us to take some, some, make some space where we can take some steps. And I want to close by reminding us as a community, we have personal ownership and we have communal responsibility. As a community, when people share stuff with us that is difficult and challenging, we want to personify God's grace, help them get to the root, and see real healing. We don't want people to hide. Would you stand up and I want to pray for us.